everyone, we're back for a thrilling third episode of Mimosa Talk. TV season is officially in full swing and man, it's overwhelming. I counted and in just one week, I have watched a total of 15 shows. I mean, I don't know if there's even that many hours in a week, but I'm doing it somehow. That being said, this mimosa is very much needed to fuel this podcast right now. Cheers. Before we get to breaking down all of our favorite old and new shows, let's get into some news. The CW's lineup is packed with shows, but one of the ones that I'm personally missing this season is Roswell, New Mexico. I know it got held back for a mid-season premiere, which means they'll have more time to prep another season that'll wow us as much as the first one did, but I just miss Max, Liz, and our extraterrestrial friends. Despite not knowing where the plot will take us in season two, we do have some exciting casting news. Original Roswell star Jason Baer has signed onto the reboot. The exciting announcement was made at Roswell's New York Comic Con panel, though they didn't offer up any insight into what his role is going to be. Unlike with Charmed, the original stars are backing Roswell, which only means good things ahead, right? There was a One Tree Hill wedding last weekend that reunited some of our favorites from the series. Hillary Burton, who famously played the brooding cheerleader Peyton Sawyer, tied the knot with her longtime love, The Walking Dead's Jeffrey Dean Morgan. The wedding was slightly overdue because the couple has been together for a decade, but that's what made it all the more special. Not only were the couple's friends and family in attendance, they were also joined by their two kids, nine-year-old Gus and 19-month-old daughter George. Wedding rumors have been swirling for years when it came to these two lovebirds, but Burton clarified everything with a post on Instagram where she wrote, But before we do any of that stuff, Jeff and I just want to put it out there that we got married. For real. We've lived as husband and wife for a decade. We've built a family and a farm and found our community. We knew our truth, so it felt silly to try and correct anything. Here's the God's honest fact. From the moment I met Jeffrey Dean Morgan, he was my husband. Rather than make vows right out of the gate, we lived them for over 10 years. The good times and the bad. Standing up there with our children at our side, celebrating all that has been, was bliss. I love you, Jeffrey. Burton thanked her intimate group of friends who came to celebrate their love, which included Morgan's Walking Dead co-star, Jensen Ackles, his wife, who is also Burton's former castmate on One Tree Hill, Danielle Harris. Um, the two played a crucial part in the wedding because if it weren't for them, Burton and Morgan would have never actually met and fell in love. Burton's tree hill besties, Sophia Bush, who played the famous Brooke Davis, and Bethany Joy Lenz, who played Haley Scott, were also on hand for the celebrations. I honestly wish there were more photos because just knowing how strong their friendship still is, how much they've endured together, and how much they've grown into these magnificent women, it honestly just brings me to tears. I love these ladies, and I love One Tree Hill. Burton wore a stunning Carol Hannah bridal gown that was simple, elegant, and just very much reflective of her easygoing personality. Nothing about this wedding was conventional, though, and that was the beauty of it. It wasn't just about, about the bride and the groom. It was about their tribe. Morgan even solidified a permanent bond with his co-stars, Ackles and Jared Padalecki, as they got permanent matching tattoos. 
honestly, the only thing greater than this girl's love fest is the bromance at this wedding. Congratulations to the happy couple. Dynasty's Madison Brown was spotted on a date with the Liam Hemsworth. And to that I say, get it, girl. Look, Hollywood stars rebound rather quickly, but going from Miley to Madison is the kind of low-key change that I think Liam really needs right now. The two are out holding hands, enjoying each other's company, and probably connecting on the fact that they're both from Australia. I ship it. Riverdale returned for its fourth season and used the premiere as an episode that paid homage to Luke Perry. We'll get to all of that in a minute, but the biggest news about Riverdale right now is the casting news. I mean, we're about to meet a new member of the Lodge family. During New York Comic Con, it was revealed that Michelle Prod would be coming to town as Veronica's dangerous older sister. Now, if you thought Ronnie was an only child based on how she's treated, how she thinks she has control over her father, and I don't know, the fact that no one has ever mentioned a sister, then welcome to the club. It's unclear what's bringing her sister to town, but we're going to go out on a limb and say that it has something to do with both of Veronica's parents being in jail. We know Veronica is well-equipped to take care of herself, but the law might not agree with that. Tell Me a Story aired a promo for the show's second season, and it looks even better than the first. I'll admit I've never watched the first season because I don't have CBS access, and two, it seemed way too scary. But I've heard so many good things about the series, and you know I have to support my boo Paul Wesley. Plus, like I said, the new trailer is dark, deranged, and it's a spin-off of my favorite fairy tales, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, and Sleeping Beauty. So you guys give it a try, and I'll watch the first season and then the second season, okay? All of this talk of creepy TV shows kind of leaves me wondering, when are we getting a second season of You? It's about time we got some kind of release date, don't you think? I'm going to have plenty of free binge-watching time in the coming winter months. I mean, honestly, it's like 30 degrees in Chicago already today. So give me something to watch, guys. The One Chicago crossover is this Wednesday, so get ready to sit on your couch for three hours without moving a damn muscle. And I'm serious about that because this looks like it'll be the best crossover event that we've ever had. The trailer alone is like a movie warning Chicago of a mass infection that leaves the streets completely vacated, and Will Halstead declares that it's an act of terrorism. Things will start with the Chicago Bears tailgate, where... Uh, the employees come in contact with the infected person. They bring the person back to med and try to diagnose her. One thing leads to another and fire scoops out that this was planned by some deranged crazy person threatening a violence on the city. Oh, and Upton gets exposed and possibly infected. Here's my little humble brag. Living in Chicago, there's plenty of opportunities to work on these shows as an extra. Considering I'm a blonde, I was a stand-in for Upton during part of the crossover and got to see them film it and be part of the action. Stand-ins, if you don't know, basically just help directors and producers stage and light the scenes. It isn't glamorous work by any means, but if you're into TV like I am, it's a really cool way to just get to see everything live. Everyone on set was beyond sweet and I had a really great time. So trust me, I'm speaking from experience when I say this is one episode you do not want to miss. And now 
I'm not only refilling my mimosa, but I'm sounding the spoiler alarm because it's time to get into our weekly TV shows. Let's start with Superhero Sunday on The CW. Batwoman's debut was better than I anticipated. I didn't have exceptionally high hopes following Kate Kane's debut on the Arrowverse crossover. And even now, I'm not really sure I'm completely sold on Ruby Rose's portrayal of Kate Kane. She seems one-dimensional. Maybe things will get better once Kate fully embraces her alter ego as Batwoman, but I'm not really sure. I am intrigued, however, in the reveal that Alice might be her late sister Beth, who was now evil and turning on their father and hoping to rule the city of Gotham with Kate by her side. It sets the series up for a promising family conflict and makes things personal for Batwoman. Supergirl wrapped up the Children of Liberty storyline, thank God, and started off on a fresh slate. For the most part, they stayed away from the political views, though Supergirl did make an offbeat comment about registering to vote in the first few minutes of the episode. But aside from that, they primarily focused on their new big bad, uh, the new CEO of CatCo. Lena sold off CatCo to Andrea Rojas, a a former acquaintance who is changing up how the newsroom is run and letting clicks and money dictate content. It's unsettling in the current climate of fake news. But though Rojas is evidently eager to store up trouble, she's also not wrong about us as a society judging ourselves and our self-worth by the amount of clicks we get. Who knew the scariest villain on Supergirl was going to be the most realistic one? Kara traded in her skirt for a pantsuit cape, which is something to be celebrated. I mean, did you see how her face lit up when she realized she could now wear pants? She also came clean to Lena about her identity, finally. Um, Unfortunately, while Kara assumed everything was fine between her and Lena, the damage had already been done and Lena was plotting her vengeance against her former bestie. While Lena feeling betrayed is normal, I don't think it makes sense for her to do a complete 180 and excuse her anger and her behavior with the Luther name a name she's never actually owned up to and never wanted to be defined by. It's unbelievable that even after feeling so hurt, Lena would just vow to destroy the person she's valued most in this world. It doesn't feel authentic, and it spits on everything that Kara and Lena have built up through their intense chemistry. It also cheats Lena because she's a better, more complex character that really deserves a storyline that raises her up and makes her the better person. She's supposed to be different than all the Luthers, a hero, or at least someone who works towards being a hero every day. The Lena we know would have seen the hurt that this has caused Kara, and her apology was so heartfelt, and it proved how valuable Lena's friendship has been to her. So I really hope that I'm not let down by the storyline going forward, and that they don't completely botch the Kara and Lena friendship. Emergence delivered a strong third episode that answered the pressing question, who is Piper? Piper, as we found out, is not human. She's some kind of robot that was used as a test subject. Um, She fell seriously ill in the third episode, which allowed Joe and Benny to embark on a journey to learn more about who she was, where she came from, and how exactly they could save her. They got help from Emily, who was an employee of a Fortune 500 company responsible for the testing. Um, She's employed by Richard Kindred, who is actually John Locke from Lost. 
So there's your little supernatural TV show tie-in. Um, this seemingly reversed Piper's self-destructive breakdown. But really, what's next? Joe is tough, but she's clearly in over her head with this business tycoon, the government, and people who have robot dogs at secret facilities. It's all shady. Not to mention there's nothing assuring us that Piper isn't evil. You know, robots can be very human-like, but that's also dangerous. Piper has sort of imprinted herself onto Joe, and Joe's caring nature allowed her a place in her home with her family close to her daughter. But what happens now? What if Piper refuses to leave? Has Joe put herself and her family in danger? There's plenty of questions we still have about Piper, despite finding out that she is some kind of android. Uh, did she take out the plane like she believes she did? What's the extent of her powers? Are there others like her? And who was the woman that helped them save her? She seemed very invested in helping Piper and had a soft spot for her. So could that be her mom, her creator? I'm interested to know. I gave Almost Family a shot for two weeks now, and boy, was that disappointing. The Fox show was one of the ones I was most excited about, and it completely let me down. The premise seemed interesting and had the potential to really inform about fertility fraud, but it didn't do any of that, instead dumbing it down to a lighthearted comedy that doesn't really tackle the issues or the reality of it. The disgusting crime, which yes, is sexual assault, is just used to propel a storyline about some fertility doctor who gets caught with his hands down the cookie jar and his daughter, Julia, who was exasperated by everything and attempts to get the fertility clinic back on track. No, honey, if this truly happened, no one would be coming to your fertility clinic. It would be done. It would be over. It's non-existent. There's a little bit of outrage when the news breaks that he has um, created like 100 children, but we never really see any of these children that are affected except for Edie and Roxy, who seem not to care at all. No one's treating it as the big deal that it actually is. Edie steps in as Leon's lawyer along with her husband and tackles the prosecution both in and out of the courtroom. Yeah. Edie is cheating on her man because she's sexually confused, and that matters more to her than anything to do with the realization that she's the product of Leon's heinous crimes. Roxy is pretty much a cliche, and she clings on to her new family pathetically because her old family sucked and used her for profit, despite her being a has-been gymnast for years now. It's actually kind of ridiculous now that I'm saying it out loud. But you don't notice it because Emily Osment is such a good actress at comedic roles that you enjoy watching her nonetheless. But no child, realistically, would celebrate being lied to about their paternity for all these years. And that's one of the biggest problems with the show. It isn't realistic. Aside from the obvious issue, diminishing the very real crime as nothing more than an oopsie, they are trying so hard to bring these three ladies together as this found family. They're really pushing the idea that having the same genetic makeup makes you family when we all know that that couldn't be further from the truth. And then there's Leon, who actually believes that he didn't do anything wrong because he was simply trying to help people. And not an excuse, dude. Not, not at all. The whole time I was watching the show, I found myself wondering who the hell greenlit this pilot? 
Almost Family remained steady in ratings in week two, but that doesn't mean those ratings uh, were that promising to begin with. It actually started off on a really low, and I think it's going to get canceled sooner than later, so don't waste your time. Chicago PD focused more on another case of the week and then kind of slightly dealt with introducing Rojas, who was really, really swiftly pulled into intelligence. Personally, I think it's a little too quick to be bringing someone in. The crew is unstable. They haven't talked through all of the recent trauma that they've encountered. They've just kind of swept everything under the rug and moved on. And that's kind of how they handled Antonio's departure. His role was reduced to a quick line as Voigt said he was moving to Puerto Rico to be with his family. It aligns with Gabby's exit from Chicago Fire, sure. But what about his kids? What about his ex? What about his job? What about his friends? Wouldn't he want any of their support to beat this drug addiction? And wouldn't he at least come say goodbye to his unit? Med gave Dr. Rhodes such a... Well, they gave him a send-off. Regardless if it was cut short, he had one. Antonio, who has been on this show since it started, just deserved better. I was so angered by how they just one line wrote him off that the kind of like the rest of the episode was whatever to me. Rojas proved herself um, worthy enough to join intelligence, though she did act out of line a few times. And I mean, now she's going to live with Upton because she has nowhere else to stay. And that was pretty much the gist of the episode. Chicago Med keeps upping the ante on the soap opera dynamics, but it's working in their favor. Natalie questioned her memory when she ordered a nurse to push the wrong drugs to a patient that went into a coma. She blamed it on misspeaking, but Halston wasn't convinced and said he'd be overlooking her cases going forward. I'm not Will's biggest proponent and agree, his motives are usually selfish. He 100% gave Natalie that memory loss trial information because he wants her to remember what she came to his car to tell him the night she was hit. And it was proven that Natalie's mistake wasn't entirely, entirely to blame for what happened to the little girl. But Will's right in this case, and he means well. One mistake and Natalie could kill someone. It could cost her a life. It could cost her her job. And that's not necessarily something she should be willing to risk. And... I think she should just be more understanding about the case. But that's the thing. Everyone at med has such egos. They feel like they can never be the patient because it's wrong or it makes them less than. It's dangerous and it's selfish. Maggie almost keeled over on a patient because she was passing out at the operating table. She's so hell-bent on keeping her breast cancer diagnosis a secret and plans to do so by working through the chemo. But she's not superwoman. It's going to make her tired. It's going to make her break down. And she's going to need a support system to get through it. She scared off her new trainee in a rather upsetting way. The girl didn't deserve any of that. And she was right. She shouldn't be spoken to like that. She was trying her best and she was trying to help Maggie. But it does make sense that Maggie trains April instead. She's always been her substitute, her fill-in, her second team. And there's no better person to carry that torch on. Dr. Choi found himself in an ethical dilemma again, which is nothing new for him. He doesn't understand boundaries or what it means to respect a patient's wishes. No matter if he thought the guy was committing suicide, the man believed he was doing the exact opposite and preserving his body to one day come back to life via cryonics. I really don't know enough about the practice, but it's fascinating and reminds me of this one movie that I watched when I was a child, which honestly scarred me for life. 
So there's that. And then there's the pregnancy storyline featuring Dr. Marcel, which was disturbing mainly because it was taken straight from the headlines here in Chicago. There was recently a tragic story about a young woman going to meet um, someone off of Craigslist to buy baby clothes. The sellers, um, which were a mother and a daughter, strangled the woman, cut out the baby, and took it to the hospital claiming she had just given birth. The baby and the mother didn't make it. And this storyline was similar, except that we couldn't help but feel for the mother, or the woman who thought she was the mother, who cut the baby out of her co-worker's belly because she was grieving the loss of her son who died from cancer. Grief manifests itself in various ways, and she truly believed that she was saving her son, and all around, it was just a tragic, heartbreaking story. But the good news is that they saved the mom and the baby. Riverdale premiered its fourth season with a devastating yet beautiful episode that honored the life and legacy of not only Fred Andrews, but also the man behind the character, Luke Perry. The series didn't acknowledge Perry's death much last season because the storyline didn't allow it to, but the clean slate offered by a new season gave them the opportunity for one of the best send-offs I've ever seen. It's rare that a character death is preceded by an actor's death, but when it happens, it's up to the series to honor that character properly. At the kickstart of the episode, Archie found out the devastating news that his father was killed in a hit-and-run accident after stopping to help a lady with a flat tire on the side of the road. That lady, we later found out, was Perry's real-life 90210 co-star, Shannon Doherty. Seeing her pay her respects, call Andrews a hero for saving her life, and pray with Archie and his friends was a moment I've never seen on television. I've honestly never seen people come together in solace and just pray. So if I wasn't bawling like a baby beforehand, which I was like 13 seconds into the episode, believe me, I was bawling even harder right now. Um, Archie went through all the stages of grief during the episode and KJ Appa's performance was, it was raw and layered and emotional. You could tell this was personal for him and it was personal for all of them. Archie, with the help of his friends, brought his father home one last time, and they were welcomed by a police escort from FP and a parade arranged by Cheryl honoring the fallen hero. Fred was always the good, the light in the darkness that envelops Riverdale on a daily basis. And even in his death, he knew how to unite a town that not too long ago was turning on each other because of G&G and the farm. The funeral was as expected, devastating, but a needed send-off for a very beloved character. Fred Andrews will always have a place in Riverdale. After all, he built the damn town. The episode didn't feel out of place, and even had some very Riverdale-like scenes, like that creepy nightmare Archie had with everyone, including his late grandpa, dressed in black, waiting for him in his dining room to get his dad. There were also a few nods to what we can expect to this season, Hiram was in jail, Hermione was in jail, and Cheryl was talking to her dead and mummified corpse of her brother Jason. You know, usual Riverdale stuff. The Resident, aka TV's most underrated show, kept things going with another really fantastic episode that saw a battle of the egos between the raptor and Kane, Dr. Bell exhibiting behaviors we all thought he left behind in season one, and Conrad uncovering another Dr. Lane-like mystery at Chastain. Dr. Bell's decision to become the face of supplement brands doesn't stem from the goodness of his heart or 
a passion for the products. Nope, he wants to become a household name like Dr. Oz. Even though he's such an accomplished doctor and head of Chastain, he still has to feed his little inflated ego. Speaking of egos, Kane and the Raptor couldn't let theirs go, and it nearly cost them a patient's life. They managed to work together seamlessly, which shows massive potential for them as characters, and I'd love to see them put their differences aside to do some real magic in the operating room. However, they have clashing personalities, and I just don't see either of them taking a step back to make room for the other. Conrad had a bad day, since his patient just dropped dead after exhibiting no troubling signs. His desire to get answers led him to the revelation that something shady is happening in Chastain. Shocker. Every patient, including Nick's sister Jessie, who had received dialysis in the last few weeks, had died of a pulmonary embolism. So yeah, Nick's father may have been onto something when he said he had a gut feeling that Jesse's death wasn't an, ex- an accident and should be investigated. This might give Nick some peace of mind since she's been beating herself up over Jesse's death, but it also shows us that her relationship with Conrad is in a much better place right now. I mean, he didn't even wait half an episode to tell her about his findings. I just love Koenig so much. Also, Mina was noticeably absent from the episode, and I don't want that to happen ever again. It's not allowed. It's not okay. We just need Mina. Next week's episode has a Halloween spooky theme, and it looks straight up like a horror movie. I love when TV shows embrace the holidays and get into the spirit. Halloween episodes, specifically, are some of my favorites, and with a hospital setting, the show has so much potential to do some really, really spooky stuff and give us some spooky cases. And I know you all saw Mina and AJ sharing a kiss, so that better not be some kind of dream or anything like that. Like, that needs to happen, and it needs to happen this upcoming week. Dynasty returned, and they are all up to their usual Carrington shenanigans. None of them skipped a beat as they attempted to cover up the deaths of Trixie and Mac by all means necessary. Fallon was haunted by Trixie's ghost, which led to her eventually confessing to what really happened. Blake was arrested for killing Mac, even though Adam said he switched body tags so Blake's DNA wouldn't be on the body. Not sure if he flubbed that one or if he's setting his daddy-o up on purpose. He's a character I cannot stand, and I'm truly disappointed that he got up to series regular. Same goes for the new crystal. It's not that I don't like Danielle Alonso, but how many crystals can we go through? This is the third season and the third crystal. At least when the first switch happened, they killed off Natalie Kelly and replaced her with her friend and the real Crystal. But this time, they kind of just glossed over the switch and hoped that the audience wouldn't notice that it wasn't the same actress. It was weird. Just really weird. And classic telenovela trope came into play. As expected, and because he was also up to the series regular like three hours before the series premiere, Liam survived Adam's attack on him and woke up in the hospital clamoring for his girlfriend. Nope, not Fallon. The other one, Ashley. Not only does poor Liam not remember the engagement, but he also doesn't remember meeting Fallon. You definitely cannot bounce back from that easily. Colhane's in prison, which blows because he was framed by Blake, and he kicked Kirby to the curb. Pun intended. Just like Fallon and Blake did. It was... It was sad seeing Kirby snuggle up on the couch at Fimperial, but look, 
like I said, in real life, Madison Brown was spotted canoodling with Liam Hemsworth. So I don't feel sorry for her. And yeah, I do find the timing of their relationship reveal a little odd, as it was a few hours before Dynasty premiered. We know that they need the views, and now everyone's talking about that actress from the CW. Just saying. Legacies returned with everyone at the Salvatore School celebrating summer while Hope was stuck in the dark depths of Malivore with Clark. Well, what else did she expect when she pulled him in with her? Clark proved that he wasn't all that bad, but when Hope finally allowed herself to get expelled from Malivore, she left him behind, and in his anger, he declared war against the Tribrid. Look, if he really wants to be free of his father, he probably shouldn't try killing the only person who can actually kill him. Maybe Clark's promise was a fake-out to join forces with Hope. But being back on Earth wasn't more comforting as Hope realized that everyone forgot about her and they moved on. Landon and Josie were the only two who stayed behind at the school and they bonded over their depressing summers. When Hope came back, she walked in on them kissing. Yikes. Erasing Hope from existence opens up the show to a unique love triangle and a pairing that would have otherwise not happened. She's mad at Landon, sure, but she really can't be because he doesn't even know she exists. And even if they remember her, those feelings and summer memories that Landon and Josie shared will still be there. So yeah, I'm really interested to see how this is going to play out. Roth is still a wolf, but will likely be the only one who has any memory of Hope when she turns him back. And then there was a mention of the twins' evil Uncle Kai when they were trying to figure out what the Ascendant was. Look, I know Kai was a terrible person, but man, what I wouldn't do for Chris Wood to appear on the show again. Kai was hilarious and hands down the best villain in the TVD Originals universe. And finally, Nancy Drew premiered this week, and well, it's not the Nancy Drew you remember reading about when you were in elementary school. Sure, this girl loves solving mysteries, but she also has a tense relationship with her dad and is coping with her mother's death by having a lot of sex with a dude named Nikki, who may or may not have killed someone. Yikes. In the final moments of the episode, she goes through her dad's files to realize that Nikki was deemed guilty by one key witness. Tiffany Hudson, the girl who was murdered earlier in the episode. The pilot was promising, but it wasn't until those final moments where it really, really hooked you. All of her co-workers at the restaurant weren't connected to the mysterious murder until those final moments when all of their motives, or the fact that they have motives, were revealed. The Veronica Lodge of the group is actually living in a trailer, and all of her expensive items are most likely stolen, just like Tiffany's wedding ring which she somehow had in her possession. George, the manager of the restaurant, and also Ryan Hudson's ex-girlfriend, um, came to his house after his wife's death to hook up. So that right there gives her motive to kill Tiffany. And Ace, the seemingly dumb dude, is undercover or at the very least feeding information to the police chief. So any one of them could have really committed the murder, and it's up to Nancy and us, to crack the case. Also, there's the late Lucy Sable, a sea queen, which is like a prom queen in the show, who died back in 2000. Everyone blames her for all the bad stuff in town, 
And while we know ghosts don't exist, this one seems to, and she's haunting Nancy. Better yet, Nancy found her bloody dress in her parents' attic. So what's Lucy's connection to Nancy? Is that her sister? The series gives me plenty of Ravenswood vibes, if Ravenswood ever had a moment to actually prove itself. And yes, those images of Lucy popping up on the screen will scare the living daylights out of you. So proceed with caution. You've been warned. Well, that wraps up our third episode of Mimosa Talk. I know it's a lot to dissect and process, but no one said television season was going to be easy, guys. You can catch up with all of my TV musings in real time on CraveUTV.com and share your comments and thoughts there. I want to know if you guys agree with my points, what shows you guys are obsessed with, and what plot lines you love and hate. We'll chat next week, TV lovers. Till then, cheers!